you know, and doing good work journalistically means that you focus on some of those stories that, that kind of got skipped over uh, when you were covering an uprising or when you were covering some acts of civil disobedience. And that is the work of journalism. Let's get down to the factors that contribute to what we're seeing as breaking news here. Let's, let's get down to the history behind it, the systems that are in place, and how those things affect the people that live here. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about journalism's future. Despite a decline in the overall number of full-time journalists in daily newspapers, the number of racial minorities remains steady at about 13%, according to the American Society of Newspaper Editors' 2015 newsroom census. 12% of the newspapers polled said at least one of their three top editors is a person of color. On the phone with me today is Meredith Clark, an assistant professor at the University of North Texas's Mayborn School of Journalism. Hi, Meredith. Hello, Michael. Thank you for uh, uh, participating in this podcast. I saw you, or I should say I sat in on a presentation about diversity you gave at the Online News Association's conference in September. Mm-hmm. So do, do the numbers that I just sort of reco- uh, that I just quoted, do they surprise you at all? They don't surprise me. I've been keeping up with the ASNI newsroom census for years now. I'd say more than anything that they're a consistent disappointment, but definitely not a surprise. So one of the things the surveys reveals is that the percentage of racial minorities in newsrooms has been pretty steady for a decade, around 12 to 14 percent. A lot has changed in journalism in that time. Why hasn't that number gone up or down, do you think? Well, I think there are a couple of factors um, that we would need to consider. The number of students who are actually pursuing journalism careers and where newsrooms are hiring from. With print and broadcast, you know, those traditional legacy media newsrooms in particular, uh, we have to consider how the media landscape has been fractured and people are going other places to produce journalism. So we're, we're focusing on some of our old institutions and those numbers may have remain steady there, and those are places that have lost a lot of staffers over that same period of time. So there are a number of things to consider in in talking about why those numbers are stagnant. So are you saying then that, you know, you you talked about that, uh, you know, our industry is kind of fractured and we have these sort of new platforms where uh, people are able to do their journalism. Have these new platforms opened up more opportunities for people of color? Hard to say. There are definitely more places for people of color to make their voices heard. Are there places for more people of color to make their voices heard and be paid uh, and be able to live off of that? That's the question that that remains. Yeah, well, if there's any places for, for journalists to, to live and make money, right. uh, it, it's, uh, it's just across the whole industry. So why is it important to have minority voices in the newsroom? Well, I would say um, it's important to have diverse voices in the newsroom and not just minorities um, and not thinking about just the term minorities, primarily because the composition of our our country is changing. The makeup of the people who make up the United States is changing. And as we increasingly um, look in our own communities and then to the world around us, you want to have people on your staff who can 
express what's going on in those diverse communities in a way that is culturally competent. Uh, you want to be able to connect with your community and reflect their interests and their concerns. And so having people in the newsroom who know of those communities, who are in those communities, um, and who can explain them and, and make that plain for readers is important. That's, that's a matter of maintaining strong connections between news outlets and the communities they serve. So sort of following that logic, then it would also be very important to have uh, a diverse voices in not only just the newsroom, but also the leadership of the newsroom. Everywhere, everywhere. Uh, the leadership of the newsroom, the advertising side, <laughs> distribution, anywhere that you can think of where there is a job, you want to make sure that you have people who represent all facets of your community doing some of that work. So what does a lack of diversity mean to sort of the coverage of, of what the newsroom does? Is it is it more the type of stories or the way the stories are told, do you think? It's a little bit of both. One of the problems that a, a lot of legacy media organizations are having right now is connecting with younger readers and more diverse readers who have moved away from some of the traditional platforms and are primarily consuming their news and information on mobile devices and via social media. If you don't have newsroom staffers who know that and who know that about the, the segment of the audience that you're trying to capture, you're going to miss them. And then in the same way, if you have staffers who don't know proper terminology, who don't know history, who don't know where to find the sources to accurately report on diverse issues and diverse communities, and then the standard issues um, and the greater community, you're going to miss out on an opportunity to explain things clearly and to explain them in a way that's accessible to all members of your community. One of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you is, is a few months ago, I, I had a conversation with Baynard Woods, who was uh, one of the he's an editor at the um, the Baltimore Weekly Paper and had covered the uprisings uh, in that town following the the Freddie Gray um, Freddie Gray's death and one of the things we started talking about was the way you know his newsroom and how other newsrooms are cover were covering the Baltimore story and uh, we sort of got into this sidetrack story about the idea of well you know the importance of hiring adverse staff and then the, the importance of them not only you know helping to guide the the choice of stories but also just the types of stories and recognizing that mm -hmm. the, the all these different communities have their own mm -hmm. stories I mean I think one of the concerns that, that, that people have is that you know if you're the, all the uh, the black coverage may be about about crime or mm -hmm. or, or poverty, and you're not actually reflecting uh, the the day to day stories uh, of the people in that community. Right. And right. and it may it may seem that oh yeah, well we're covering that community, we're covering these types of stories, but in actuality, you're not really reflecting the day to day life of uh, the people in that community. Mm -hmm. And, and that's long been a concern. Um, the Kerner Commission report released in the late 60s, uh, 67 or 68, I believe, talked about one of the shortcomings of news media was that it failed to accurately capture what life was like in black communities in particular. So not just this superficial reporting on life in the ghetto is bad, but what the day-to-day -day activities were like, what the day-to-day -day realities were like for people in these communities. And you mentioned something about the way the Baltimore story was being covered, and you said the words Baltimore uprising, and it, that was my code word. Yes, yeah, you know, it, it's um, 
that's a reflection of someone paying attention to the conversation that's being had in minority communities about civil disobedience um, and about civil disorders around the issue of police brutality. And that means that someone's been paying attention to that conversation on social media. They've been paying attention to the activists, to the people who have come out to participate in these demonstrations. Where you see that people aren't paying attention is where you hear the word riot. And being able to make that difference is a reflection in um, not only having a diverse staff, but also having the connections that you need to the community to do a really good job in telling their stories. Yeah. And that story in particular, and let's talk a little bit about it because that, that was a podcast that I had done and we had, had a long conversation about it. That podcast in particular sort of changed my thinking about that word and about the sort of the language you use when we, we cover something. Um, you see a bunch of people protesting. You see a bunch of people being clashing with police. You know, you you view that as a riot, and mm-hmm. you you don't that does that's that's a word choice that you make that sort of colors your view mm-hmm. of uh, of how you're going to cover it. I mean, what does that mean? You know, why are they rioting? Why mm-hmm. why why are they fighting against? I mean, do the police have legitimate means to or a reason to to sort of quell this going on, or is this? You know, is what they're doing in reaction to something that's that's greater, a greater problem that is really hasn't come to light, but we're suddenly seeing this sort of flare up. Mm-hmm. You're, you're spot on there. You know, the the word riot, um, we instantly activate this schema of just complete chaos and anarchy. And when in fact, what was happening in Baltimore, you know, sure, were there there people rioting? Absolutely. There were people rioting, but there were also very peaceful protests. There were protests that were well-organized, and the motivation behind them wasn't pure anger. It's frustration with years of systematic equality, or inequality, um, with a lack of employment options, and with the, the fallout from poverty. And so to talk about what happened in Baltimore as an uprising reflects that. It lets readers know that there's more that's going on than just reaction to a death of a single person at the hands of the police, that people have n- a number of reasons uh, for being out in the street, for protesting, and for drawing attention to problems in their community via civil disobedience. And this is a podcast about journalism and about the way journalists cover things and about about when they enter a situation like that and, you know, how, how the decisions they make about how to cover something like that, you, you co- go to cover a riot, you know, you're talking to police officials about their response mm-hmm. and, and you may not be going necessarily going out and seeking, you know, representatives of whatever the other group is. Hopefully is, a, you know, if you're a, you're an ethical journalist who's, who's interested in telling the, the full story and, and getting as many sides as you can, that you, you are going to try to make that effort out there. But, yeah, just going out there with the idea that, you know, it's a riot, it's a police action, I'm going to get my, you know, releases from whatever the, the, the police say, I'm going to cover what the mayor says, and not actually getting in and looking at the bigger picture and the situation. And what's sad about things like that is, is you know, once the quote-unquote riots are over... And the, and the media moves on, and the spotlight moves on. You know, as as we speak, the Freddie Gray trial is going on. Um, that the larger community, the larger community, you know, thinks that story is over. But mm-hmm. obviously, that story is not over. Absolutely, um, you know, and doing good work journalistically means that you focus on some of those stories that that kind of got skipped over uh, when you were covering an uprising or when you were covering some acts of civil disobedience. And that is the work of journalism. Let's get down 
to the factors that contribute to what we're seeing as breaking news here. Let's let's get down to the history behind it, the systems that are in place, and how those things affect the people that live here. We also did a podcast. I, I spoke to one of the people from Al Jazeera America uh, when they were covering what was going on in Fer- Ferguson, Missouri. And uh, at that time, the, the person I spoke to uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, there's sort of this talk about, you know, connecting that event to, you know, the the events that were going on in Florida and in other places around the country. And then, then you have something like Baltimore. And so these are these are types of stories that, you know, maybe journalists are going to more increasingly going to find themselves having to cover and then going to have to, you know, um, think about the language, think about the approach to the stories. And that's why it's kind of important for us to sort of, you know, I don't know if this is a, a Monday morning quarterbacking type of thing, but <laughs> but look at, you know, taking lessons away from that. What do, what do you think are some of the lessons that come out of these recent events and the way they were covered that journalists can sort of have? Well, um, uh, first of all, I, I think the big takeaway for me that I've seen is to know the history, right? We're used to doing really great work when news is breaking. That's that's what gets our adrenaline pumping. But we do a disservice to readers and to people who use the information that we produce when we aren't able to contextualize it properly. And so knowing the history isn't just what's on file, the records that you can get from local officials. It's also talking to to people about what the community relations were before this point in time where you have a conflict. And so that's something that I, I think that we all should be thinking about. Another lesson is to kind of actively monitor how the community is receiving the coverage that you're putting out as, it, as it's breaking. Uh, and we do this in, in terms of analytics, but from a more qualitative perspective, you can listen very closely to what is being said, to who is being talked about, and find out some of the other issues that you, you should be taking a look at that um, some of the people who might otherwise be overlooked in your coverage. And I think the newsrooms that do that very well are the ones that are in touch with social media and uh, know what voices to listen to in, in their coverage area. Yeah, and this is actually part of the larger conversation about diversity in newsrooms and diversity in our coverage and recognizing that, yeah, we're all one community, but we're all different parts of that community. Mm -hmm. And maybe the lesson of things like Baltimore and about Ferguson and other places is that these were stories that were happening before Mm -hmm. things blew up. Yeah. And maybe the... You know, the journalist shouldn't be so much concerned. I mean, certainly be concerned, but the the primary concern shouldn't be how am I going to act when, you know, for lack of a better word, the the shit hits a fan Mm -hmm. or but more about what can I, you know, why, why wasn't I in touch in the community Mm -hmm. to uh, to see this coming or to know who the players were Mm -hmm. that if you're if you're in tune with your community, if you you know that there's some sort of conflict, that there's a history of, of things going on, you know, maybe that's something that you say, yeah, this is something I could have seen happen. Mm-hmm. And that if I know X group is involved in this, that that's maybe the people I should talk to about, you know, why do you think this is happening? You know, what is the civil, civil disobedience that you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, take action on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? So it's it's actually being a journalist 24-7 yeah. and not just yeah. when things go bad. Yeah. 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 
And as a part of that, um, you know, getting out and interacting with people who aren't just a part of your beat or the stories that you tend to cover, but going to a couple different places in town and just striking up conversation with people, you know, that kind of, for lack of a better term again, shoe leather reporting is the kind of thing that really uh, set news outlets apart back in the day, the ability to cultivate sources in that way. While modern technology has made it really easy for us to, to get in touch with folks online, there are a plethora of people who aren't online, who have institutional history and knowledge about communities that are waiting for someone to talk to them. And so investing in the community that way and being a journalist 24-7 that way is also essential to making sure that you're producing the most comprehensive coverage that you can. Yeah, finding different voices, finding you know, maybe going to things, pushing yourself a little bit and, and getting involved in conversations or, or, or that, that you maybe not were used to be comfortable about doing, mm-hmm. you know, not, not just don't be comfortable about your, about your news coverage and your, and your story choice. Pick hard stories to do sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because those are going to have a greater return on dividends, I think. Absolutely. So, well, now, now that we saw that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, and it's 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 not as if this is 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 a new problem. I think this is obviously this is something that that that's been going on for a very long time, and hopefully, you know, I I don't know about you, and I'm sure you have a very different perspective about it than I am. I, I find a lot of people that I talk to seem very conscious of the idea that you know we have a diversity problem that. It's not enough that one, you know, one group is included and allowed to do this or can now do this, but it's actually how do I interact with these other groups that I am not part of and why are those other groups not somehow part of my life? Mm-hmm. And, and not even just in journalism, but just in the way we live. Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. So, yeah. and I think, I mean, I, I think that, <laughs> I think that's, that's where we need to move forward in, in America. I know, I know you could... I don't know what I was watching. It was, there, somebody was talking about the idea that, well, I'm not a, I'm not a racist. You know, I, I support this, this, and this. But, but what have you done in your life to, to, to make change, to, to include other people in, in your job, in your community, in your church, or whatever? Mm-hmm. You know, taking that extra effort. It may, it's not just enough to say, yeah, everybody can do this. Right. It's actually sort of actualizing this sort of diversity to make it happen. Right. The the thing that always bothers me about that response is, you know, if you are able to tick off on a list the things that prove that you are actively engaging with diverse populations, you're not doing it right. It ought to be a, a natural part, you know, and in the beginning, it's not. It definitely isn't because you're reaching beyond your own comfort zone and the borders in, in which you live, your own personal communities. But it's while it's challenging, it's also really, really rewarding to seek out some of those experiences so that you're not limited to checking off the list or checking the box and calling that your diversity engagement practices. Yes, that I have X number of people in these positions. And so I've done everything that I need to do. Right. Um, because if you don't give those, if you don't give those people a voice, you know, in a newsroom, if you don't, you know, you hire three people because they fit a particular category, but you don't actually engage them. You don't, you don't listen to them and allow them to sort of change the direction of, 
of your coverage and, and the way you view your community, then you really haven't done anything. Exactly. Exactly. You filled the quota. Congrats. That's not going to cut it. <laughs> so quotas is not enough. It's actually, you know, living a diverse culture, being a diverse culture, promoting a diverse culture in your life and in, in your office and in, in your newsroom. Mm-hmm. I, I've often gone back to that it's about relationships. You know, you may not be able to spend time outside of your newsroom volunteering for an organization where individuals have completely different lives from yours. But at the very least, you should be able to have lunch with a coworker who has a different background and learn things from them, learn about the way that people in their world see the world, learn what they listen to, learn who they respect. That is relationship building and its diversity engagement that helps in some of the the most nuanced ways. And I think that's uh, more important than the the days of service in a single place or covering a particular cultural event and saying that that's diversity in action. Yeah, I have a really nerdy story that I could tell. I was at I was at a um, a podcasting event and I sat in at this podcast and, and the 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 title of uh, of the, the the panel that that was there was uh, not all podcasts are white. That there are a lot of different voices out there in all types of media, and they're all different. You know, that it's not white nerds that are just doing podcasting, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I'm a, a, a white nerd. <laughs> one of, but one of the people was there actually does a, like a like a pop culture type show, and one of the, his favorite shows is this TV show, The Flash. And the thing about it is mm-hmm. that you know, and, and one of the things he talked about the show and why he really likes it is not just because he's a fan of comic books, but because the main character is a white man who is raised by a single black man and her, and his daughter. And he sees every, and he's raised in a in a black family, and so he approaches problems in, in, from that perspective. And there was one particular story, the story that the guy referenced, and he said, you know, they, they had to pick between these two people, and the main character picked this one person, not because everybody else was saying, oh, pick this other guy because he's much smarter, but because he recognized the character of that this other person, this black man, mm-hmm. and it was all because of the experience that he had. Mm-hmm. And so afterwards, I went up to the guy and I said, you know, thank you for very, for telling me that and letting me see something in a very different way, something that my own experience, I would not wouldn't have picked up on it. But because he did it, because I listened to him, mm-hmm. it changed my perspective about that show. And I think that's, you know, it's a nerdy example of, I think, what we need to do. We need to talk to each other. Yes, absolutely. It, it opens the door to another experience. Okay. Well, that was a that was our little nerd side trip on us. Um, so, to sort of get back to my questions here, it's like the Pew released a report last year about how the makeup of America is becoming more multiracial. It's not just about the coverage of Black and Latino communities. Your ONA panel included someone representing Southern Asia. Uh-huh. Why are newsrooms lagging behind in the diversity of their workplace and in the coverage of the more diverse community? Do you think? Ah, uh, goodness. So many, so many different reasons. Um, some research that I did, goodness, nearly a decade ago indicated that the reason a number of black journalists in particular were leaving was because of, you know, the non-competitive pay rates, the lack of opportunities for advancement. And everyone that I talked to in that study told me that they got the message very, very early on that journalism was not a career. Uh, <laughs> so that might be part of a marketing problem on, on our end. Uh, if 
people know as early as high school that journalism isn't really a career option, that it's simply a stepping stone, then we're going to have a hard time retaining people. At the same time, with the folks that we've got, if we're not offering them opportunities for advancement, um, opportunities to challenge themselves as professionals, they're not going to want to stay. I think the big takeaway there is is that we aren't doing a good enough job in connecting with diverse communities in telling people, taking them, you know, behind the editor's desk and showing them what this career is like day in and day out and showing them that there's a place for them in it. And that's the kind of stuff that it's it's harder to measure than the numbers. But if you don't have that kind of quality investment in your people and in the, the talent that you want to attract, you're not going to be able to, to build big numbers. It's yeah. not going to happen. And everything that, that it points to that America is becoming a much more multiracial community or a country. And one would think in the certainly from the long run that that you know by by approaching it by seeing it and by by pursuing stories that have a more multiracial approach that you're actually you know speaking to a larger group. Mm-hmm. And and so one would hope that at some point somebody will realize that. Mm-hmm. Um one of the other things I wanted to ask, we touched a little bit on digital technology and sort of the rise of, uh, of, you know, the opportunities that are out there. So there, there may be startups out there that are particularly focused on, a, on one particular diverse group. You know, I'm a, a young uh, black man. I want to cover um, my community from that perspective. Is there, do you see any pros and cons for, for somebody doing a startup and, and you know, covering a, a, a sort of narrow casting, I guess, is the way to look at it, you know, doing a deep dive on, on one particular community or, you know, what, what are the good things about that, but what, what else maybe is not the best way to do it? Well, let me make sure I understand. So are you talking about a person who is starting out on their own and, and yeah. they are focusing on uh, an yeah. audience? No, I think that's probably the best way to start. One of the problems that you've seen with larger organizations is uh, those orgs trying to do too much too soon or those orgs trying to appeal to everyone. And certainly while there are news outlets that need to be that um, service for our community and, and need to make sure that they are a addressing a number of different audiences. If you are an individual, uh, you want to make sure that you are able to build an audience that is going to stick with you through the iterations of whatever it is that you are producing. And you're not going to be able to do that if you're moving in 12 different directions at the same time. You can see, and I think podcasting is, is a great example of this, podcasts are very, very focused often on a singular issue or a singular perspective, and that's how people build their audience. They uh, can reinforce that you know, with online content, with blogs that you can read, with things that you can download and use in your everyday life, and in that way, they claim a little segment of the market. And honestly, that's what people want. If I can go to a larger organization, a larger media outlet, and get the same thing that an individual producer is offering me, I'm probably going to go to the larger one. Unless you've got something that is different and special and keeps me coming back, you're going to have a hard time keeping people. So I think it's a very smart move to to focus on a niche. Yeah, and that's not even just uh, something that has to do multiculturally. That's just any perspective, any sort of a basic business business approach. Identify your audience 
and and just cover the heck out of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's that, that's how you're gonna you're gonna make your success. Now, before you were talk, we were talking. You mentioned that you're working on a project uh, about Black Lives Matters. I am. I am working on some research with Dean Freelon at American University and Charlton McIlwain at New York University, and we are studying the Black Lives Matter hashtag and how it has served as a means of civic engagement and civic education. And from a journalism perspective, I'm I'm really interested in this because there's so much that I've heard from the study participants that I've worked with about how news is getting and has gotten the Black Lives Matter narrative wrong. I think it's a, a classic example of not knowing the history of certain communities or social problems and having to quickly turn around some reporting and then having that reporting further alienate the audience that really, really needs it. Uh, so we are releasing that report to the Spencer Foundation. Uh, we got our funding through the Spencer Foundation. It's coming out in December, and then it will be more widely distributed to the public in January. Can you tease any bit, or is it still early days on this? We are still working on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we each do very different things. So Dean is a big data guy, and he's been looking at the spike in the hash hashtag and when it was used and where it was concentrated and who were some of the most vocal uh, voices and using it on Twitter in particular. That's where we're focused. Charlton does textual analysis and semiotic analysis, and he also looks at some of the images associated with the protest movement. And then I focus on interviews with people who have used the hashtag online or care about it or somehow participate in a protest related to it. And so I'm capturing the stories of why people got involved and engaged around Black Lives Matter. Can you talk at all about any of the, I don't know, up to this point, what would have been the concerning issues around the Black Lives Matter? From a news perspective, yeah. or, and I think the, you know, one of the big troubles that news has had is that we've had a hard time trying to figure out what Black Lives Matter is. Is it a movement? Is it a movement with a certain leader? Um, what are the aims of the movement? You know, how will we know when it's successful? And because journalists, like everyone else, need a shorthand to understand something, and we haven't had one with Black Lives Matter, it's been really hard to nail down the coverage. So I think our work in particular will be helpful in, in kind of encapsulating that narrative and, and making sure it's told uh, correctly. This is kind of like the, uh, what is the 99%? Centers. What, what was that movement? Yeah, the, the Occupy movement. movement. Yeah, that that there was this boom. There's this big thing, and, and, and suddenly there's this huge movement that apparently a lot of people are involved in, but it doesn't seem to be particularly organized. And I think it's just something that we're going to see more of in this in our in our social media driven world, where we're going to have these things come up that people, you know, get around as a way to communicate, as a way to share ideas, but it's you know maybe pulling in lots of different type of groups and perspectives around a particular ideal. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as a society, we're, we're not used to it unfolding this way. We like things that are very right. neat, that are easy to understand, and um, social movements via social media are not. <laughs> Just no. by nature, they are not. Well, yeah, and, and you know, from a, and, and this, is, this is a challenge for journalists uh, going forward. You, you talked before about, you know, um, this is kind of a challenge for uh, journalists going forward that just understanding that, 
you know, it's just not one source anymore. It's not you, you can't just identify a church leader or a right. political leader anymore right. as the voice of something. It's there may not be a voice. Right. Absolutely. There's there's no Martin, there's no Malcolm. You now have to pay attention to some of everyone who's involved. Right. And well, yeah. But then it also sort of affects your storytelling because how do you tell that story? That that may ha- you know how do you how do you define the monster that has a thousand heads? I mean, you know which which one is the one? Not that I'm calling this these the people who are doing these these uh, very worthy social um, uh, endeavors uh, monsters, but just you know how do you define something that has so many different uh, facets to it? Taking something very complex and, and making it understandable to an audience. That's a challenge. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a the macro version of, of what we're experiencing in newsrooms. If you don't have the people to connect and who can tell different facets of the story and and look at the story in different ways, you're you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to meet the challenge. Well, th- this has been this has been really fascinating, Meredith. I, I really appreciate you giving me the time to talk about this. I I know I could talk for another hour about this because I, <laughs> I find this endlessly fascinating. Um, but uh, when yeah, you said people are going to be able to expect this report. Report uh, come December. Yes. Okay. It'll well, into the Spencer Foundation um, in December, and it will be publicly available in January. Well, thank you very much, and um, I appreciate you, you talking to me. This has been a great time. I, I learned a lot, and it also gave me a lot more things to think about. Oh, thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. This week's podcast was produced by Michael O'Connell, Amber Healy, and Nicole O'Grisco. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also subscribe to It's All Journalism on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spreaker. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. It's All Journalism is also a member of the DC Podcasters community. Look for us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.